Okay. Did I unmute the mic? Can you hear me okay? Did I not? Okay, great. Thanks so much. Well, it's so wonderful to be welcome among you today um, and to enjoy worship with you and to bless. I've been so blessed by worshiping with you guys this morning. And um, I love the historic emphasis. I love the deep, rich scriptural emphasis. Um, that's what I'm going to try to, to share with you guys today. As we read, we're reading, uh, studying in Mark chapter 6, which is our gospel reading, along with Mark chapter 8, uh, which I'll read for you in a moment as we get to that point. Uh, let's pray together as we open the Word of God. Father God, thank you so much for your mercy poured out on us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for how you are at work in each of our lives for the purpose and agenda you have for each one who has come today as your followers or as potentially your followers in the future. Thank you, Father. We pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts through your word as you minister to our spirits. Your Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes, make us aware, and Father, bring conviction and encouragement and hope and challenge and all the things you want to do in each one of us individually today in response to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we see him in action, we want to also see ourselves in the story and how you want to weave us in to the works that you're doing in the world. And so we pray it in his name for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 6, and uh, we'll be, you know, if, you're, if you have your Bible open or Bible app, that would be great. And uh, we'll follow along and kind of draw some principles from the text. This is one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, it's one miracle that appears in all four Gospels, which marks it as unique. But Mark, in, uniquely, Mark includes a repeat performance of a similar miracle, a mass feeding of several thousand people. And that's just two chapters later. We'll be looking at that briefly in chapter 8 as well. So as we look at both Mark 6 and Mark 8 this morning, Here's what I would like you to think about. I hope you're thinking about this theme, this idea. How does Jesus want to involve you in his miracles? How does Jesus want to involve you in what he's doing, working in our community, in our world today? Because one of the main themes of both of these texts is how Jesus includes his followers. He asks them some engaging questions. He gives them some things to do to set up what he intends to do. And he challenges their ordinary thinking and stretches their faith. And so we can definitely see ourselves in the story. Now, we surely see Jesus. We see his compassion. We see his power. We see his wisdom. But then we see ourselves. Alongside him, we see ourselves in the lives, in the responses of the disciples. We see what Jesus is trying to do in our lives to make us more mature, to make us more responsive, to be ultimately to be more like him. And so... In verse 12, to, to go back to verse 12, I'll let you look at that, but the re reference there is that the disciples of Jesus had been pretty busy. They'd been sent in pairs on a mission trip, you might say. They, uh, Jesus told them to go call people to repentance, to tell people to turn from their sin and turn to God. And they'd been involved in healings and in uh, demonic deliverance and so forth. And now they're back. By the time we get to verse 30, they're back. And no doubt, they have stories to share. They have questions to ask. 
They want to spend some time debriefing with Jesus. You can imagine what that must have been, that experience must have been like for them. And he wants to debrief with them as well. And so, you know, Jesus understood the, the importance of, of re- balancing work and rest. And so as we look at verses 30 through 33, what you see there, Jesus is showing us work hard, but get rest. Sometimes we, some of us don't know when to get busy. Sometimes some of us don't know when to stop. And so here's the disciples. They got to this retreat destination, and the crowd was already there. Oh, my gosh, like their rest was completely interrupted. You ever have that situation where you really need some downtime, you really need some solitude, and people won't leave you alone, right? People just won't seem to, the demands never seem to end. Well, how did Jesus respond to that? If you look at verse 34, you see Jesus' response. He saw the crowds, not with anger, not with annoyance, but with compassion. They were needy. They were vulnerable. To Jesus, these interruptions represented an opportunity. Now, that's a mindset that I don't always have or maybe often have. And so we see that the disciples, that's, they're, they're kind of frustrated by this. They, they're a lot like me. They didn't respond like Jesus did, but with some frustration. And in verse 35 and verse 36, they have this suggestion for Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, look, it's the end of the day. It's already late. And the, the disciples are telling him, send the people away so they can go out and get some food in the villages around here. The idea is, I think that the disciples had been expecting this time of rest, this time of debrief and intimacy with Jesus. And, and it's getting late. They think, now's our chance to get a break. If these people, if Jesus, if you just send them away for a few hours to find some food, then we can get what we're hoping to get out of this situation. And it reminded me, you know, all of us have suggestions for God, don't we, about how he can make our lives better. But Jesus didn't choose that approach. Now, what, before we go on to the story, I want to connect some dots with you and understand the bigger picture of what's going on here. Because the story isn't just about the circumstances that Jesus and his disciples were facing. Life is never just about the immediate circumstances, not when God is at work, right? God's work is much bigger than those immediate things. And so if you look at Mark's story and you connect chapter to chapter and see what's building here, you see that Jesus and his disciples, you look at that as a whole, you start to see something going on. You start to see something that Jesus is doing, a bigger picture. So his goal is to make something out of his disciples. Jesus has a huge vision for these individuals. Now we look at, often I open the Bible, I look at, I see their faults, I see all their failures. Jesus saw all that too, just like he sees ours. But he also saw their capacity. He saw what they could become, just like he sees that in us as well. And his plan was to use every situation to grow them into everything that he envisions them to be. And that's why he says this most remarkable thing in verse 37. Remember, the disciples are, are suggesting, let's send the crowds away for mealtime. But Jesus answered, verse 37, you give them something to eat. He delivers this, what I, Jesus has this way of giving these high-impact, low-probability statements. You see them all throughout the Gospels. High-impact, low-probability and they're going like, what? That flipped them into this. They responded by flipping into this attitude of scarcity. Their response is like, no way. 
And they were calculating in their minds how far from attaining that level of resource they really were. He says, we'd have to spend bajillions of dollars to, to, to provide a meal for all these people. And that challenged me because, that, that convicted me because how often when we're faced with a challenge, do we flip into automatically into a scarcity mentality? So here's, this, um, this spring I became aware of several great opportunities for ministries that I believe in, in our community down in Utah. For example, there's a young couple that I became friends with. They came to serve on the, on the campus in our town with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And they were interns. They did a great job. They were coming on full time. I thought, they're so, it would be worth something to invest in their ministry. That They're going to do something great. Some authors. So I'd say, well, I can support them financially. And there's a ministry in, in, in Salt Lake City that ministers to people leaving Mormonism, Latter-day Saint ministry. They're building a training center, a bookstore, uh, to replace some things that are, are gone now. And they do a great job. They have this, this building they're trying to refurbish. Oh, well, that would be a great thing to be involved in. And at Alpine Church, where I serve, we're a multi-site uh, uh, church, and we have a, a campus in a, one a neighboring village town that needs a new building. And we're refurbishing a building. We say, oh, that would be a great to get involved financially in that. So each of those opportunities that cross my path to bring resources to bear on something I believe in, and I, I know that God will take whatever I surrender to him, and he'll multiply it. But I got into a scarcity mentality this spring because I had a serious bicycle accident on April 12th that affected my physical and my mental abilities. So for a couple months, I was just not doing anything. I, I wasn't doing any work. I was kind of a in rehab, I was in the hospital for a couple weeks and doing rehab for after that. And so for a couple of months, I'm questioning my future. Here's my ceiling, but maybe my ceiling is now here. I'm questioning my capacity. Do I have the ability to do the things that God has given me opportunity to do in the past? The things that bring life to me and use my gifts. And, and then I was questioning my financial security because there's going to be some hospital bills related to this. And and I thought, you know, this might affect my ability to make a living. And then what? And so my response was to hold back on investing in those opportunities God had gave me. Now, certainly there's a prudence in that, I admit. But in my heart, it wasn't just prudence. It was a scarcity mentality. I changed my outlook because of the circumstances that I was in. That's the temptation that we always have. But as the days went by, God began to convince me of his care I saw his provision in many different ways. So I decided I, I got to get off the, the scarcity cushion and make an investment in those things. I've been focusing on my lack of resources or my potential lack of resources rather than trusting in God, who is the God of unlimited resources, and trusting in his goodness to me. So thankfully, I, I feel like I'm about 98% now, and it's kind of miraculous, really, to, to, to be where I'm at today and able to share with you. But this was a time when you know, that was all questionable, and I had no idea how it was going to turn out, and, and yet God was so good to me, and I, so I've seen this testimony of him, and this is what Jesus is trying to show his followers. In Mark, we see that he's like this master teacher. He's a trainer. He's leading his disciples step by step through this process of learning the things that he wants them to learn, and so he makes a succession of statements to them and each leads to a response. And so um, 
they responded in, with their scarcity in 37. 38, he starts to make these statements. He says, you feed them. What? what? But then he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You take inventory. Find out how much bread you have. It wasn't much. It was five cheap loaves of bread. There was two fishes in the mix. But then Jesus gave them another command. He said, go get organized. He goes, you know, have the people all sit down in groups. And so even then, they had no idea what Jesus was preparing to do. They were being obedient, but they had no clue about what, he, what was really happening in that situation. And that just reminded me that, you know, I can trust Jesus with the bigger plan. I really can. I don't have to understand everything that's going on or everything's going to happen in the future before I do what he told me to do. And so when everything's ready, Jesus does what his disciples could not, would not do. They could never do. But the thing is, what I want to encourage you today is that he involved them in the miracle. And so uh, looking at verses 41 through 44, 41 tells what happens here. Jesus blesses the, the loaves and the, he gives them to the disciples to distribute them. And, and there's some left over. Everyone is fed. There's this God of infinite resources. God doesn't need us to do anything for him. He could do it all. But he yet he invites us graciously to be involved in his work, to be part of what he's doing in the world. And so even though he can do anything, even though he has all the resources, he often asks us to bring our meager offerings to the table. And when we surrender our few fish and our limited loaves, then he multiplies what we've offered to him. So Jesus did the miracle. It was all him. And yet he wanted his disciples to be part of it, to participate in it. They organized the people. They distributed the food. They picked up the leftovers. And everybody ate as much as they wanted to eat. Jesus wasn't stingy. There's 12 baskets of food left over. You know, he has a track record of creating something out of nothing. The Bible says he made the world. That's how he did it. And Jesus didn't need that young boy's loaves and fishes, and yet he invited that boy to be part of that miracle. I just, I thought, imagine the impact that that event of that day had on that boy's life growing up. Jesus didn't need the disciples' help, but he got them involved in order to grow them, in order to train them. And likewise, he doesn't need our gifts to provide ministry for his church, to provide for people who serve him full-time, but think about how our faith grows and how our confidence in God grows when we see how he takes our scarcity and he multiplies it into abundance to meet a need. So, you know, I appreciate reading the, uh, the epistles that was reading, read earlier, Ephesians 3. Let me remind you what that says. Now, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what I'm learning. I'm learning as I watch God provide for me in a situation that I've never been in before. That's what I'm learning as I watch God care for me in times that felt, have, it's felt really overwhelming at times. Glory to God for what his mighty power in us can do so many different ways. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the similar event took place a second time in Mark chapter 8. 
And so I'm, let's turn to Mark chapter 8. Um, and I'm interested in seeing how much the disciples grew in their maturity as followers of Jesus from event number one to event number two. So I'm hopeful here, right? And so in Mark chapter one, uh, 8, verses 1 through 4, during those days another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Well, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And it goes on to see what happens next. But I I want you to notice uh, Mark uses the word again there. Again, we see Jesus' compassion and his care. Again, Jesus is working in the lives of his disciples through this event. See, they'd been here before. I don't know how long it had been. It wasn't, wasn't that long where they'd seen Jesus multiply five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people. But now, I can so relate to this, they're in a similar situation and old mental and spiritual habits kick in. The old way of thinking about things, like it, it, it's not, the new way is not, has not gone deep yet in their soul. As Jesus is working on that, the old habits kick in, and so their impulse is to say, wait, wait, we don't have enough. We, don't, we can't meet this need. And I can relate to that instinct because that happens to me over and over again. Another need comes up, and I look to my resources, which more often than not will come up short. But Jesus patiently demonstrates his power to the disciples again. And I thought, you know, what gets revealed here is not so much the disciple, the limitation of their resources. But what we see here is the limitation of their thinking, the limitation of their trust. They're asking the wrong question. They're asking like, wait, how are we supposed to find enough food? We only have seven loaves. Wouldn't it be great if they had learned to ask this question? We only have seven loaves. I wonder what Jesus can do with them. Again, we see he's got a greater purpose in their lives. He's building their trust in his care, in his ability, in his provision by putting them in a situation that's beyond their ability. Now, I'm not critical of the disciples because I repeat that same scenario over and over again. I mean, maybe you can think of a time in your life when you didn't learn from the last situation where maybe God miraculously provided for you in some challenge in the past And you're having trouble trusting him for today's challenge. And maybe it's not just a financial thing. Like we see here, resources, material resources. But maybe you're worried about, man, I don't know if I have enough talent. I don't know if I have enough experience. I don't know if I have enough time. That's why I want us to not be discouraged. Because Jesus, as we see, he's at work in the disciples' lives. He's at work in your life as well. And you know, those mental habits, those ways of seeing the world, those don't change overnight. 
The Bible talks about renewing our minds. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't copy the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. It takes time to change the way you think to a different response than the one that we learned from the world around us. So for example, maybe you always thought of God as stingy and you can't quite shake that. You know the Bible says something else, but you can't quite shake this idea that you've thought of God as unwilling to provide. Well, it's going to take time. It's going to take change for you to start seeing God as generous. Or maybe you've never thought you, you matter to God. It's going to take some time to change in how you think, to start seeing that God is crazy about you, that God loves to have you on his team. Or maybe you've thought that you don't really have anything to offer. It's going to take a new way of thinking for you to realize that God has gifted you for his glory and God values what you have to offer because he gave it to you. And that changing that thought pattern, that happens when we reflect on what God says in the Bible and what the Bible says about God, like this, for example, Philippians 4.19 says, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a verse that I, I wrote it down. You know, back in, the, back in the day, I wrote it on a card and kept it on a magnet on my fridge, you know. Now I've got it written down digitally in my reminders, but I would encourage you, write, write that down or write one down like that that's going to encourage your faith, that's going to stir you up. It's not a, it's not a, a negative, it's not, like, it's not going to beat you down and say, you don't do enough, you don't do this enough, you don't give, you don't trust God enough. No, the, the idea is to say, you know, God can nurture that in you and develop that in you, and Jesus has a plan and purpose for your life. It's not to, it's not to, say you're bad and you've screwed up, but it's to, fo to follow through on all the things that he wants to, you to become and you to be until you realize that since God met our greatest need, he met our need for forgiveness of sin. He met our need for a savior that he can then be trusted really to meet all of our needs. And so I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say today, what I hope that you'll hear is that Jesus has a grand vision of who and what he desires you to be. And for some of you, he's at work in your life to draw you to himself until you become one of his followers. And maybe you're thinking about that. Maybe you're challenged by that whole decision, wondering what that means and what that's going to look like and how that's going to change your life. And he's, Jesus is drawing you because he has a vision, a purpose for you that goes far beyond anything that anyone can offer and then when you give your life to him and you give your eternity to him, then he goes to work to grow you in maturity to become ultimately more like him. Yeah, you become someone who trusts him, that's for sure, but also you become someone who's involved in his work, someone who shares in his compassion, someone who shares or participates in his miracles, someone who's available to him. Your attitudes, your perspectives, your purpose are surrendered to him along with your resources, however meager they might be. So today's folk stories focus again on material resources, on bread and fish, but we all have resources of time and 
talents and abilities and wisdom and knowledge. Maybe you don't feel like your individual resources are that great. That doesn't really matter. Jesus invites you to put your five loaves at his disposal to see what he can do with them. He invites you to put your two fish to see who he can feed with those two fish. And so I'm asking you today, again, how does Jesus want to involve you in his miracles? For example, are you willing to reach out and befriend that neighbor? See what Jesus can do as you build a relationship. Maybe it's someone that nobody else in the neighborhood wants to befriend because they're curmudgeonly or, or they're, you know, there's something about their personality or something. But can, what can Jesus do if you say yes to that? Are you willing to jump in and help with the ministry at this church? Discover how Jesus might multiply your time and your talents through the things that he's leading this congregation, Christ the Redeemer, to accomplish. Are you available to be trained as a mentor, a discipler, who can help people who are new in faith discover who Jesus is and how to serve him? That's our heartbeat at Alpine Church where I'm on the staff. That's our number one priority, and we have resources. We can help you with that if that's what God is, Jesus is calling you to do. Does Jesus want to involve you as a loving parent or a loving grandparent in your child's school? Does he want to involve you in some ministry that serves the community? He's got some miracle involved that he's planning to do, but he wants speed on the ground. He wants you to participate. Does he invite you to encourage others who are going through what you've been going through? Remember, Jesus is at work in your life as you say yes to him to make you more mature, more full of faith, more like him. He's going to work through each one of us as we say yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, for the miracles that he wrought. We, we are taught to have faith in him, to trust his power, your power through him. Father, I, I pray that as we look at the disciples today, we see our own lives. We can see, Jesus, how you're nurturing us, you're challenging us, you're asking us relevant questions about our life to stretch our faith, our involvement with what you want to do in the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you are active. You are doing so much that we can't see, that we don't see yet in this community. And so, Father, we want to say yes to you wherever you call us, to wherever you nudge us, wherever your Holy Spirit uh, gives us opportunity and someone with a need crosses our path. We want to say yes to you, Father, as you say together we're making some decisions corporately as a body of Christ, as a group, to do some things that, that matter, to provide some ministry. And so we're going to be involved in that. Father, help, help each one of us to know where we fit and what you're calling us to do and how you want to work through us, how you want to mature us, and how you want us to participate in the amazing things that you're planning to do. So, Father, we come to you. We're thankful. We're thinking about you. We're full of, we're, our faith has increased. We, we think about your character, your nature. We also come to you today. We want to be surrendered to you and let you do your gracious work in us. We trust you with that. We trust that you love us so much, that you have so much a good vision and a destiny in mind for us. We want to surrender our resources, our money, our time, our abilities, our knowledge and wisdom, our relationships. We surrender them all to you, Jesus, and ask you to do your awesome work 
in them through us. And in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory we pray, amen.